0: I'm gonna be the man who makes up next to you. When I go out, yeah, I know I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be the man who goes along with you. If I get dunked. Oklahoma moves to two and oh on the season with a twenty-eight to eleven win over SMU, but the topic of the day is not. Dylan Gabriel's four-touchdown performance. It's not Oklahoma's lackluster, if we could say, offensive approach to this game. It's not the fact that Oklahoma held SMU to just 11 points, which is like the lowest point total the, the Mustangs have had in something like eight years. The topic of the day is Jeff Lebby, and his father-in-law, Art Browse being on the field in Norman on Saturday night, 30-some minutes after the game had concluded. And I... <laughs> I didn't know whether I wanted to even broach this topic on this episode of the podcast. By the way, thanks for tuning in again to the Sooner Nation podcast. I am Matt Hofeld, Heartland-Sports.com That's where you can find us online. Here's my deal with this. Here, here, because there's just not, there's not a clean way to approach this topic. There's not a way you can jump in here and say cut a dry. This is the action that you take. This is the action you don't take. You're going over the board with this and with this and with this. I don't think it's a good look. I don't think you're going to find anybody in Sooner Nation who has a sound mind that's going to tell you it doesn't matter that Art Bryles was in Norman. It doesn't matter that he was at the game. It doesn't matter that he was on the field. I think all three levels, you got to have something to say about it that's going to be not positive towards the situation. But that said, we're talking about a public town A public institution. There's no way you're going to bar Art Bryles from coming to Norman. Do you like it? No. But you can't stop it. And it's the same as the game. I mean, you can't really ban a guy from a public institution. No one's going to be able to keep him from buying a ticket and going into a stadium. It's just not possible. So I think where we draw the line here is, why is he on the field? And I don't, again, I'm not in favor of this. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying it should have happened. I'm not saying it's okay that it did happen. But on two of the three levels, there's no way you can prevent it from happening. And then when you consider that he's Jeff Levy's father in law, I, I, look, I, p- parents go on the field, wives go on the field, kids go on the field, aunts and uncles go on the field. I saw someone on social media like, oh, you shouldn't even have an OU shirt on. Really? Because, I mean, you're not going to stop anybody from wearing an OU shirt. I mean, look, I do agree. Being on the field is a privilege. And you should, in some facet, earn the privilege to be on the field. And our browse has forfeited, I think, from the here to the end of time, he's forfeited that privilege. But I, I don't know that I'm going to jump all up in arms and ban the guy from ever wearing an OU shirt when his son-in-law is the offensive coordinator for the Sooners. Our Browse was there to support his family. Jeff Levy was trying to support his family by by talking and inviting his family down on the field after the game. What needs to happen from this point forward? That's not for us to tell. I think we can agree... It's not a great look, but also the same in the same breath say, what can be done about it? Uh, clearly, Brent Venables wasn't happy about it. Clearly, Joe Castiglione wasn't happen happy about it. But when you look at the whole whole look at the whole situation, Brent Venables didn't even know Art Browse was on the field. Didn't know he was there until right as he's getting ready to go into the press room. Same with Joe Castiglione. They didn't know. And the fact that they didn't know, to me, that that indicates one key thing here. Because what we want to come at, what we want to scream at, what we want to say is, oh, it's a bad look for the institution. It's a bad look for the program. It's a bad look. Again, not disagreeing with that. But the fact that Brent Venables didn't know he was there, the fact that Joe Castiglione didn't know about it, it lets you know how far away from the program that this thing was. This was not a program sponsored invitation. This was Jeff Levy being with his family. And they can say, look, Jeff, here's the, here's the clear boundary. In, in case it wasn't clear beforehand, which apparently it wasn't, here's the clear boundary. If our bros wants to support you as his father in law, he's free to do that from the stands. But he cannot come on this field ever again. Make that known. And then move on. I mean, I, I don't know that we deserve to know exactly how Brent Venables and Joe Castiglione are handling this situation. But I will say there there is a nuclear option out there, and people are just saying, "Fire Jeff Levy! You got to fire him right now. He doesn't deserve to be in this program anymore." Well, you're saying that probably more so because you're you're upset that Dylan Gabriel had a 70% completion rate on Saturday night, but less than 200 yards passing. That's probably where you're coming from. More than you're coming from your outrage that Art Bryles was in the stadium. And we and listen, we got to be careful here. How, how we choose to stand on a moral high horse if we're calling for Jeff Levy's job with his association with Art Bryles, I mean... Even the word association is a little bit difficult because it's father in law. It's a family association. The only way to disassociate himself from Art Bryles would be to divorce Art Bryles' daughter, who, by the way, is the mother of Jeff Levy's children, which Jeff Levy made clear about that Saturday night after the game. But the nuclear option out there is we got to get rid of him. Association with Art Bryles is too much, really? Well, then you better not. You better not be hanging around Barry Switzer is all I'm going to say. I love Barry Switzer. He's the king. Every time I hear Barry Switzer speak, I stop and listen to what the man has to say. I love to hear his stories. I'm grateful for the championships he won. But listen, Barry Switzer wasn't clean. And, And we're talking about not just money, not just cars, not just drugs, not just fur coats. There was some morality issues under the Barry Switzer watch. And we're not gonna sit here and pretend our pretend that Barry Switzer didn't turn his a blind eye to a few things. So when we jump on those moral high horses because we're not satisfied with the coach's performance, I think we gotta be very careful how far we're willing to go with that. The nuclear option of firing Jeff Levy is the worst thing that's out there on the internet right now. It's the worst thing that's out there. If you don't like Jeff Lebby, I get it. But I'm just going to ask you to be patient because he's not going to be around much longer. Not because he's getting fired, but because he's going to be a head coach somewhere else. So just be patient with it and see what happens. But if you fire Jeff Lebby, can you imagine what the shockwave of recruiting and current players on this roster is going to look like? Fire Jeff Lebby because he hung out with his family? Jackson Arnold's probably gone. Fired Jeff Lebby because he hung out with his family. Michael Hawkins, probably gone. Fired Jeff Lebby because he hung out with his family. I mean, just imagine not just the guys on the roster, not just the guys that are committed, but can you imagine me as the head coach of Texas or offensive coordinator for Texas as an Alabama guy? As a, I mean, you're going into the SEC where recruiting battles are a daily way of life. Oh, you're considering Oklahoma? Yeah, didn't they just fire their offensive coordinator because he he hung out with his father-in-law? Because that, that's where you're heading. That's exactly where you're heading if you're on the fire Jeff Levy bandwagon because Art Bryles was on the field after the game. And you can say that and not condone what Art Bryles did because I in no way condone Art Bryles. But I also say let's not just blow everything up Because a guy that we detest was at the game wearing an OU shirt and down on the field. Can we just back up for a second and pause that conversation? Because now what you have is the opportunity to sit down with Jeff Levy and say, Look, Jeff, we know he's your father-in-law. And we know you love your wife. And we know you love your family. But here's where we are on this matter. Somehow it wasn't clear, but it's clear now. Now let's move forward and let's put this behind us with you understanding where we are on this and we understand that you understand where we are on this. And if there's another incident beyond that, then you've got cause. But for right now, just to go out and, and pull that trigger, you guys got to be out of your minds. Out of your minds. And and, and again, I could say this without condoning what Art Bryles did. But here's the the flip side of that. I'm far from perfect. I would like to think that my kids and the spouses of my kids would support me even in the midst of my imperfection. So all that said, let's move on and talk about the actual game. What do you think? 365 total yards for Oklahoma's offense on Saturday night against SMU. 176 of that came through the air. Now, I, again, I know I know what we're going to say about this offensive performance, and we're going to talk about how lackluster it was and so forth and so forth and so forth. I get it. And, again, uh, and in many instances, I'm on board uh, with the criticism because it just seemed a little bit funky, particularly in the third quarter. But I, I think what we saw, though, um, I think – you probably saw a game plan that just really wanted to do two things. Number one, it wanted to avoid getting into a shootout with what is a potent SMU offense against what had been and to what so in some ways still is a limited Oklahoma defense in terms of, of being tested. The other thing they wanted to avoid doing was turning the ball over, and I think really they wanted to lean on that SMU defense, which was heavy, heavy, heavy uh, against the run against Louisiana Tech in the opener. Now, Oklahoma averaged over five yards per snap offensively, four yards Um, I think was the uh, average on the running play. So uh, when you look at the averages, average yard per play, you look at the first downs, and then you look at the the four touchdowns, it was a successful performance from Oklahoma's offense. It's just we're used to seeing more than what we saw. Uh, We're not used to seeing that much on the balance side of things. And we're certainly not used to seeing quarterbacks throw for less than 200 yards. Now, what what you have to look at, though, also, is something I've been saying for quite a while. Um, well, ever since the cheez Bowl, I, I said when we saw that game plan, a run-heavy game plan that just kind of leans and beats and wears on the defensive front, I said this is the evolution of Oklahoma's offense going into the 2023 season. And last night really kind of gave us a sampling, uh, a really more than a sampling, a good taste of that where they just ran and ran and ran and pounded and pounded and pounded on that front seven of SMU to the point where I predicted, I called, uh, I, I can prove it on text message, that final touchdown SMU goes for it on fourth down and gets shafted, uh, gets uh, stood up, gets stopped. Whatever uh, adjective you want to use to describe what happened there. Then I said, here's what's about to happen. OU is about to score because this defense has nothing left. And then a few plays later, there's Marcus Major uh, going into the end zone. And so, I, I, again, I, it, it was it was different from what we're used to seeing out of this Oklahoma offense. But it wasn't really bad, in my opinion, uh, because you look at the results, and the results kind of speak for themselves. There are some things that I've put out there uh, on our website, heartland-sports.com, just some initial thoughts and notes on this game. Um, And I want to go over those, and then we're going to talk about the things we already talked about leading up to this game. But here's the thing. Another big special teams play. Another big special teams play lets you know two weeks in a row that that is a renewed emphasis with this coaching staff. I don't know why it wasn't as much in 2022. I think part of it was personnel. I think part of it was players buying in. But two weeks in a row, you've seen special teams have a significant impact on the game. You've got Gavin Freeman's punt return in the opener against Arkansas State. And then you had Peyton Bowen's blocked punt Saturday night, which led to Oklahoma having to score as well. So... You're, you're seeing, not only are you seeing big special teams plays, but you're seeing big special teams plays impact the scoreboard, and that's really where you want to be. I mean, that's the point of special teams and coaching them up and making those big plays. And I think those are the kind of things that are going to probably pay off some dividends in crucial games down the road. When, when you look at this schedule now, the way it sets up, the, the next big event as of right now, the next big event on Oklahoma's schedule it looks like it's going to be Texas, um, which we could go down a whole sidecar of thoughts and notes on on how Oklahoma and Texas right now are going to go out of this conference with a bang, uh, but we'll, we'll save that for later. But at some point, I, I I think in a tighter game, a special teams play for Oklahoma is going to be a difference maker. You can't help but love what you're seeing from Oklahoma special teams through the first two weeks of the season. Um the the second thing is that you notice from this game is Angel Anthony is going to be that guy for this offense. I I I'm like you. I was surprised that they didn't use him to stretch the field. They chose to use him in a different way. Uh, it was obvious, I think, to Jeff Lebby and company how they were going to play him. And this was a situation where it. This is what I really think is happening here. They want the ball in his hands. They want the ball in his hands, and so they kept throwing him short passes. Because what they wanted was those safeties that cheat up. They wanted they wanted them closer to the line of scrimmage, so then they could easily or more easily get over the top of them and give SMU credit. They never they never took the bait, but Andrew Anthony still paid dividends again for the University of Oklahoma. I guess dividends is my word for this episode. Seven catches, seventy six yards, and he got his first career touchdown. Um, but I I, I, I think. I'm going to look at it from an area of discipline on Oklahoma's side, not to waste downs with Andrew Anthony. The guys, he is the playmaker. They want the ball in his hands. And if you're going to leave him short, they'll, they'll get the ball to him short and see what happens. Uh, if you're going to give him opportunity to run, run over top of you, then they're going to do that as well. But SMU didn't give them the latter opportunity. But Anthony still with seven catches, 76 yards, which is um, more catches, more yards. Than what he had in in the half that he played in Week One, and then obviously you had the score. Um, But other than Anthony in that first half, it just man, there was just seemed to be some issues in communication with Gabriel and the receivers, and and I don't want to get into he said she said blame game type scenario, but you just kind of got guys running outs when Gabriel thinks they're going to turn in that kind of stuff. It just it didn't. It just felt weird. That first half with Gabriel and the receivers. And I, and I I don't know that they were, the guys, were comfortable with the game plan because they wanted to break loose. Now, they did pace. I mean, they they, they ran some, some fast snaps, but they didn't do the distance. They didn't go over the top. And you just kind of got the feeling that it just maybe, maybe it threw the vibe off a little bit. I don't know. Uh, but it just looked off between Gabriel and the receivers, particularly there in, in the first half. And maybe this next thing was a byproduct of that, not with the receivers, but just a, as a whole. There were way too many penalties for Oklahoma in this game. When I, when I step back and I look at the game and, and the post game and I just kind of think over how is this going to affect the rest of the way – because SMU was the quality of, of, quality of opponent that you can, you can scheme more off of what you had sec- success with. You can also scheme off of what you didn't have success with. And, and I, I, they're, they're that type of opponent. I don't think you can do much of that with Arkansas State. Arkansas State is that we know we can do this. Now that's, a, that's advanced on what we know we can do. With SMU, it's like this brought us success. This was a struggle. How can we take this success to the next phase? How can we kind of like take this struggle and either scrap it or make it better? So that was the type of opponent that they were playing. But man, those those nine penalties for 88 yards, that sticks with you because that, that's something that, That's you're shooting yourself on the foot. And we saw it on both sides of the ball. You saw it on the offensive line. You saw it in the defensive secondary. You even saw it from Brent Venables, who got the uh, sideline infraction. Um, uh, So you look at this, and here's what I think. I think there's two most plausible scenarios are this. It was either a lack of focus or it was succumbing to the pressure of the opponent. It's got to be one of those two things. Because these aren't penalties where you can look at the referee and say, man, these guys are just biased against Oklahoma. We like to do that, and in some cases, it's merited that we do that. We say, oh, these guys are just biased against Oklahoma because they're leaving the Big 12. You you can't make that argument about Saturday night. Those penalties were legit. Oklahoma was guilty, and, and they— they were impactful penalties. They were costly penalties. And they came at just like the worst time. They, they were critical penalties. So was it either a lack of focus or was it succumbing to the pressure of the opponent? Now, of, of those two options, you wanted to be the first. You really do. Because there are, again, I think SMU is just a few weeks away from being ranked in the top 25. We'll come back to that later on. Uh, down the road, maybe at first of October, we'll look at that and see if I'm right or wrong. But I, I think the Mustangs are are going to be knocking on the door and be in the top twenty five, probably by the by the first week of October. But there are there are heavier opponents on Oklahoma's schedule. There are teams that Oklahoma's going to face in the future, particularly when they go on the road, that if these guys are succumbing to pressure and it's causing them to make these penalties, that's not a good sign. Now, if it's a lack of focus, that's something different. Because I think focus can, to go Miyagi here, focus can be focused. But if you're buckling under pressure, that usually doesn't get better in time. But you can have drills you can have conversations you can have film sessions you can have points of focus and references that can help that get better so that you you hope that's what it was and not these guys kind of succumbing to the pressure of the opponents because SMU were the opponent but there are better opponents on this schedule for OU in the near future it was pretty good to see Jalil Farouk get in the uh, get in the end zone. Um, I I had just written in my game notes right before the touchdown. I had just written in my game notes: Is it time to start worrying about Jalil Farouk? I had him as one of my players to watch going into the game because I, what I thought was going to happen with Andrell Anthony but to get Jalil Farouk in the end zone 21 yard score I really and it was a, it was probably the most critical touchdown for Oklahoma in the game because if you if you think back to the situation the setting of that moment SMU had just scored to pull it within a, a field goal because they scored and went for two, made it 14-11. to 11. And then you got Jillo Farouk's touchdown on the ensuing possession for the Sooners. So it was great timing and great play. I, I mean, it really was a great play. Dylan Gabriel gets the ball in his hands. He makes the juke move to, to uh, get around the defender and then race to the end zone. So that was the type of play that we needed to see from Jillo Farouk. And I think Jillo Farouk needed to kind of experience that and feel that uh, because – SMU did a decent job at taking away guys like Gavin Freeman, taking away a lot of what Drake Stoops could do. Um, and so you needed someone else to step up. And so in many ways, Jalil Farouk did what we had hoped he would do um, pregame when we put him as one of our players to watch. Uh, we just thought he would do it because they were covering up on Andrew L. Anthony, not because they were really pressing on Drake Stoops and, and some of the other guys in there. Um and let's talk about Dylan Gabriel while we're, while we're on the passing game because I, he didn't have a bad game. And, and we're defining his bad game on social media and on the radio airwaves because it was 176 passing yards. And, see, and if you just see the stat line and you see 176 passing yards, it's easy to say, well, that guy didn't have a good game. But the reality is I think Dylan Gabriel did everything he was asked to do. He kept the ball in front of him. He didn't turn it over. Uh, he, he made the passes. We talked about um, pregame in our in our previous stuff. We talked about hitting those windows, making those reads. Seven out of ten throws, guys, because he was 70% completion. So a seven out of every ten throws went to where it was supposed to go. That's a pretty high percentage uh, when you're talking about quarterbacks. Four touchdowns. I, I don't think we can really bag on Dylan Gabriel uh, for for the performance that he gave on the field Saturday night. I, I don't have a problem with throwing criticism at Jeff Lebby. I, I said how I feel about the offensive performance. And, and when you crunch the numbers and you look at the success rate against this SMU team, I, I'm okay with where they are offensively. I'm okay with the 21 points. I'm, I'm okay with a 17 point victory when you're a 15 point favorite. So for me, I've got, I'm, not, I'm not going to walk away with this with, with complaints. I, I am going to say it was weird. I'm going to say it was different. It just kind of felt like the vibe was off. But there's not going to be any complaining from me on that. But, man, I, I, love, I love what Jalef did. I, I think Dylan Gabriel was solid. Um, but here's the thing that I think really impressed me the most from what I saw on the field on Saturday night. And that was the ability for this defense to read the plays and react to what's happening in front of them. I, I think everything I've said to this point has covered special teams and offense, but we'd be remiss to talk about this defense. And, and again, I, we just, we like to criticize. I, I, I think that's just maybe moving over to a little bit of cultural study where we have becoming a society that's so quick and so easy to criticize. And it, it, it even kind of bleeds into our pastimes and, and the things that are supposed to bring us a little bit of peace and, and quietness in an anxiety-filled world. But the reality is, when you look at the defensive performance holding SMU to just 11 points, I looked it up, you'd have to go back to 2016. 2016, SMU played TCU and lost 33-3. to So this was the lowest scoring output that, T, that SMU has had in seven years. In seven years of football, they, they, you have to go back to that 2016 season to find SMU having a lower offensive output than what they did against the Sooners on Saturday night. So that right there tells you you got a little bit of a victory on the defense, but SMU tried it all. They did misdirection. They did uh, they did line shifts after uh, with their personnel, skill position personnel after they got set. Um, they, they did you know, play action. They they ran it all at Oklahoma's defense. And man, this this line, you know, whether it was a misdirection, whether it was a play action, whether it was a shift uh from the backfield, uh, whether it was putting a guy in motion, Oklahoma's defense read what was happening in front of them and they reacted to it and they reacted to it to a ton of success. They blew up a lot of plays on Saturday night. And 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 a lot of times we define Particularly with the front seven, we define that success as how many quarterback sacks did they get? Well, we got to talk about two things. We got to talk about the pressure that Oklahoma put on the defensive backfield, whether they're getting a guy uh, in, you know, stopping him behind the line of scrimmage or whether they were putting pressure on Preston Stone. There was a ton of pressure in that SMU backfield on Saturday night, a ton of pressure that really disrupted a lot of plays. But the second thing you got to add into that is, man, Preston Stone was impressive. As a quarterback for that team, especially at that level, now they're going to be moving into the ACC. But I I would, I mean, look, he's going to be the top or the top two because the kid out of Tulane is pretty good as well. When you talk about American Conference quarterbacks, Preston Stone's up there with them. And he made a lot of throws on his back, on, off his back foot that were on the money. He made a lot of throws while he was running for his life. He made a lot of throws right when he was about to get blasted. So he stood in the pocket. He, he escaped and evaded long enough to get a throw off. Or he just kind of hopped and, and threw it out there where only his guy could get it. But that doesn't mean Oklahoma's defensive front didn't have success in the opponent backfield. Because if you go back and you look at that tape, Yeah, SMU made some really, really good plays under pressure, but Oklahoma blew up more plays than what SMU had success with on those plays that were disruptive in the backfield. So there it is. Let's talk about the things that we talked about, and then we'll close it out. Uh, This is the Sooner Nation podcast. Well, let's talk about the things that we've already talked about. Leading up to the game, I said there was four things that we needed to watch for with Oklahoma and SMU. One of those being, can Oklahoma's defense get to the quarterback? Now, we've already talked about this early in the podcast, so... Won't spend a lot of time on it, but the defensive pressure was there. It was noticeable and it made a difference. Now, statistically, if you're looking for the official results of what Oklahoma did um, in the SMU backfield, five tackles for loss as a team, one quarterback sack. And so you look at now, five tackles for loss, it, it, that's, that's good, okay? Uh, but again, if you're a stat watcher and you're a stat watcher only, uh, it's like Dylan Gabriel's passing yards. You see, one quarterback sack, and you think, well, gosh, you know, that's that's not very successful. But the reality is the success was much, much greater um, than what it's showing in the stat line. And for things that we've already talked about, I don't want to jump back into them. You probably don't want to hear them for a second time. But the answer to that question was absolutely yes. Can Oklahoma's defense get to the quarterback? They got to the quarterback They to the point where they impacted, changed, and blew up plays. And it wasn't just about getting to the quarterback. Now that that's that's one aspect of it, and it was great. But the other aspect of it was making plays in the backfield, and you had that uh, with this Oklahoma defense. Um, the second thing we talked about in things to watch for heading up to this game was how deep would the running back rotation go? Now this is the one that I'm, I'm most interested to talk with you about, and really I'm more I'm I'm interested in hearing. Your take on this. This is one of those things where you can hit us up on Twitter at Sports Heartland, or you can hit us up on the internet, heartland sports.com, uh, because I want to know your thoughts on this. Tawi Walker is the guy. Tawi Walker, I mean, that's that. It looks like he's the guy. You saw the, the plethora of backs. We figured you weren't going to see the true freshman like you did in week one. We figured you were going to see Gavin Sawchuk, but what order that they came in. That's what we didn't know. and they were Walker and Marcus Major were reverse order last week against Arkansas State it was Toie Walker who was the first guy to carry the ball this this week it was Marcus Major who's the first guy out when the offense takes the field. And then it was Walker followed by Barnes and then saltchu. but the the yardage and the a number of carries, is way, way vastly different between these four backs. Walker, 21 carries, 117 yards. Also had three catches for 25 yards, but that's a, another conversation for another time. But you, got, you love that aspect of the running back being able to catch the ball out of the backfield, which is one of the reasons I was so high on, on Gavin Solchuk. Walker, 21 carries, 117 yards, first running back of the season to break the century mark on the ground. Marcus Major, 8 carries, 39 yards. Here's the shocking part because what I expected was much like what we saw last week. I expected Javante Barnes to be the guy to get most of the workload to to as much as I even said leading into this game that this may be the week where you see the running back room and the running back rotation turn over to these younger guys. Now, I didn't expect a lot out of Gavin Solchuk, but I expected more than one carry for one yard. I expected way more than two carries for five yards from Javante Barnes, but we didn't get that. Instead, in only two games in, but the most crucial game of the season, you see Tawley Walker get the, the lion's share of the carries, 21 totes. And you you can't help but think at this point, this is Tawley Walker's team. He is RB one now, I, and I know Marcus Major was the first guy out on the field, but Talieh Walker was the guy who who made the play. And I said leading into this, I think I said it in the last podcast that you need a banger. You got to have a banger. And and even though Walker is a smaller guy in 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 height, he's thick. He's over two hundred pounds. Just five nine. The dude loves contact. He runs for contact. Like a little bowling ball out there. And, and I, I think we what well, we have to decide now at this point, two weeks in, week one, Walker's the first running back on the field. Week two, Walker leads the running backs in, in not just yards, but yards per carry. By the way, 5.6 yards per carry is impressive against an SMU defense that gave up less than two yards per carry the week before. But it's yards, yards per carry, and total yards, not even close. Doubles everybody up and then some. And when you talk about Javante Barnes and Gavin Salchuk, I don't know, man. You're going to have to help me out with that because you got a backup quarterback in Jackson Arnold who had more carries than Javante Barnes and Gavin Salchuk combined. Those two guys went three carries for six yards. Jackson Arnold went four carries for 11 yards. Uh, so I'm okay with it. Because the production was there against what I believe to be a pretty decent defensive front for SMU. It's just not what we expected. There's so much more that's not the we expected, and this is just one of those things in there. I didn't expect it. We haven't even talked about Jackson Arnold being the guy who comes out there, but we're going to get to that here in a minute. But we haven't talked about Jackson Arnold being the guy who comes out on fourth down. Didn't expect that. And it happened early and it happened often throughout the game. But definitely you got to – eight quarters into the game, two two full ga- eight quarters into the season, two full games in, and Talwey Walker is your leading rusher, and it looks like that's the that's going to be the, the, the story. So it's gone from a feel good story to the real deal. Now you just got to keep these other guys prepared mentally and physically. I still think Salchuk is is still dealing with some hamstring stuff. You got to get him ready because if you're running like like Walker is, it's just a banger out there. You get nicked up. Um, so anyway, so so that was the second thing, you know, how deep will the running back rotation go? It went exactly what we thought it would, four, and then you run in Jackson Arnold as, a, as an alternative that just was a wrinkle we didn't see coming. How do the Mustangs defend against Andrew Anthony? Again, we've already talked about this earlier in the podcast, so we won't come back and beat a dead horse. But one thing I didn't mention because we, we did talk about keeping things underneath and then this guy having playmaking ability because of his speed. And you think it was all you know short routes, all underneath, all small stuff, but he averaged 10.9 yards per reception. That's the average, 10.9. So the guy caught underneath stuff and still had double-digit averages. That's That's good. And that's that's why they want the ball in his hands because he has that playmaking ability. And then the last thing we asked heading into the game was, can the Sooner defense stand tall on fourth down? And the answer to that question again was yes. The Mustangs only go uh, two for four, uh, so that's that's eight fourth down attempts SMU has tried in two games. They were three for four the week before against Louisiana Tech, only two for four against Oklahoma. What they didn't anticipate, what we didn't anticipate, is that knowing SMU was apt to go for it on fourth down, what that does is that puts pressure on the other team. It affects the way you 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 play both sides of the ball. When you're talking about plus fieldage uh position, you know, when you're talking about you know, do you punt here? Do you go for it here? How aggressive do you become on defense on third down? Because, you know, they're probably going to give go for it on fourth down. Um, what kind of play calling do you want to do when you have the ball, knowing that you might turn it over, knowing uh, you know, with a fumble or an interception or whatever, to a team that's, that's likely not to punt? Oklahoma flipped the script with his Jackson-Arnold package, which is basically re- uh, reinventing the belldozer package. Jackson Arnold didn't even come close to attempting a pass. It was get the snap and run forward. It worked two out of the three times for Oklahoma. And that third time was pretty dang close to working. You almost had 100% success rate with it. But the answer to the question can the defense stand tall on fourth down? That was yes. And that final fourth down stop by Oklahoma's defense. That was huge because it was that was the backbreaker. You know, you're looking at a 10-point game at that at that point, you're going for it in fourth down, 10-point game, Oklahoma gets the stop behind the line of scrimmage. And then a few minutes later, Marcus Major's in the end zone. But that that fourth down stop, that was a backbreaker for SMU. That whatever little hope they had left after going back down by uh, you know. Yeah, go back down by 10. It was 21 to 11. Whatever hope they had left, once they failed that fourth down attempt, it was over. You can see, you can tell by the body language, both players and the coaches, that was it. That was their last punch that they had to throw. And it didn't work. So the guys that we said were key players going into this game, we've already talked about uh, Dylan Gabriel. We've already talked about Jalil Farouk. I just mentioned Javante Barnes. The two guys on the defense, we didn't really talk about just yet. And I, I, I want to I do that. Um, we mentioned Justin Harrington and what he's going to do for the cheetah position. And Justin Harrington was better than solid. I mean, he was what Oklahoma needed him to be, uh, both in coverage and in run support. I think he only ended up with four tackles on the night. But this is a guy who loves what he's doing. You can tell. Um, and and, and if. I don't have time, and you probably don't want to listen to the whole rehashing of the Justin Harrington story, but you you know the guy's story. He quit the team with Lincoln Riley. He begged his way back on the field with Brent Venables, uh, went on as a a walk-on, not even a scholarship guy, and is now your starter at the Cheetah. DeSan McCullough banged up. A lot of pressure on this guy's shoulders, and he is thriving and loving and passionate about what he's doing. And you can see it. You can see it in his swagger. You can see it in his play. You can see it in his celebration after success on the field. And you can see it on his frustration uh, in times of failure, momentary times of failure. But Justin Harrington did what was needed from him, what was expected of him, uh, what was required of him against this SMU offense. So kudos to him. The other guy we had, uh, tabbed as a guy to watch on Oklahoma's defense was Danny Stutzman. Um, and, And one of the things I said going in was that, you know, what he does on the stat sheet is important, but equally important is what he does leadership on the field, preparing these guys, getting them ready, making sure they get the right calls, making sure they're lined up, making sure they're, you know, everybody's ready for the snap. And I talked earlier about how much this defensive front is reading and reacting you're seeing the coaching, the difference in coaching on full display from one from one regime, if you will, to the next. When we talk about defensive coaches, you're seeing full display. Number one, the the impact of the, of the transfer portal, the impact of recruiting uh, these guys, uh, the bodies that they're looking for for this defense. You're seeing that. And then you're seeing the way they're being coached up. The way they're reacting and the way they're seeing what's in front of them, superb. Superb. But the other thing that you're seeing is the on-field leadership of guys like Danny Stutzman who are calling out plays and making sure guys are lined up and in the right spot to do the right thing. So that was huge. By the way, Danny's stat line wasn't terrible. It was pretty dang good to where he probably will be Big 12 Defensive Player of the Week or Co-Defensive Player of the Week or he's going to get shafted. Those are the three options. 17 tackles, two and a half of those were tackles for loss. He did have a quarterback sack, uh, which was the only quarterback sack that Oklahoma recorded on Saturday night. So all around, Danny Stutzman was your man for this defense. Defensive player of the game. We're gonna have a poll out here pretty soon at Heartland uh, on our on our Twitter at Sports Heartland. We're gonna have a poll out about who is uh, who is your player of the game for Oklahoma. You gotta look at Danny Stutzman. Now Dylan Gabriel is gonna get some love because of the four touchdowns, but Danny Stutzman's a guy that's that's gonna be out there with the 17 tackles. That seemed like it was way more than that. Tolly Walker's probably going to be a guy in that poll uh, with, his, uh, with his rushing. So that's it for this edition. Oklahoma finally, um, you know, the Sooners are 2-0 in the season. They finally get to play somebody who is a little bit of a step up in competition. You got Tulsa coming, uh, the back-to-back American League, uh, American Conference. I'm watching the baseball play, uh, the baseball um, MLB Baseball, in American League. I'm a, I'm a Mariners fan. Uh, here's here's my ADD kicking in. I'm a Mariners fan. The Mariners actually had a shot at win the AL West, and they're blowing it. Um, and so uh, there's that's where the American League came from. Uh, American Conference back to back opponents. Uh, you got uh, Tulsa coming in. Actually, Oklahoma going to Tulsa on Saturday. Two and zero in the season. Probably going to take a step down in competition. I with all due respect to Tulsa. Love those guys. They're they're from they're from our home state, but. I think SMU is a step above Tulsa uh, in the realm of, of the football world, which really means the next big one um, is going to be Cincinnati. After that, but you got to get prepared. You got to look at it. We're back to game week on Monday with a new opponent. So we'll be around. You can hit us up on the internet, heartland-sports.com. Hit us up on Twitter at Sports Heartland. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you love it, subscribe. If you like it, subscribe. If you don't like it, thanks for trying it out. But this is a Sooner Nation podcast. You guys have a great week, we'll Boomer Sooner.